Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. W-A-B-E in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Ron James believes a comedian's job is to lighten the load of an audience, not to add to the strife. Mr. James is among Canada's most successful comedians. With a long career, he writes about in a new memoir, all over the map. He joins us now via Zoom. Ron James, welcome to City Lights. My goodness, this is one of the marvels of the, uh, of the world we live in now. I can have a nice conversation with you in Atlanta and I'm in Toronto, but uh, I guess during this year of the plague, we've all been in the same boat paddling ferociously anyway, haven't we? No kidding. And just when we think we're getting out of it, it's like that line from The Godfather or Al Pacino makes the reference. Just when I'm out, they bring me back in. Yes. And you even said that with the Canadians out. (laughs) I love that. See, Uh, Thank you. I'm originally from Nova Scotia, so that makes me doubly guilty. I love it. I, uh, <laughs> but my buddy was raised, uh, who I went to university with, he was, uh, he was raised outside of Atlanta, and um, his cool southern drawl got him a lot of girlfriends in university, so <laughs> I, I, don't imagine. Know, I don't know if my maritime accent would have the same magic elixir. Oh, you'd be surprised. You'd be surprised. Thank you, Lois. You write about taking a different path as a comedian. Why did you choose to build a stand-up career in your own country when, as you write, comedic status in Canada had always been measured by being a success elsewhere? Well, I had struggled for three years chasing the sitcom Dream in Los Angeles. Uh, my wife and my daughter was 18 months when we went and five, almost five when we came back. And at that point in time, California was in a, a state of economic transition. The Screen Actors Guild got protective of their own, which I understand. I was an actor in those days. And so I learned hard and fast lessons in America that ultimately the individual is responsible for their own happiness. And when the visa became difficult to get renewed because there was no work on the horizon, I don't know how many actors are guaranteed that, I came home and I wrote a one-man show about my time in Los Angeles called Up and Down in Shaky Town, One Man's Journey Through the California Dream that shifted the psychic paradigm for me and moved me into stand-up. But it was those nights on Ventura Boulevard coffee houses like the Cobalt Cafe or the Highland Browns downtown or the Iguana Cafe up north where I'd throw my name in the hat and uh, share the stage with 30 other hopefuls looking to do their five to eight minutes and grab some corner of the American dream to call their own. I always hmm. said that I shared the stage with the illegitimate spawn of the Charles Manson clan who wandered in from their <laughs> Chatsworth Warrens with their poetry and prose looking for the love that Charlie never gave. So, oh. it, but they would come up to me and say, all these different people. And I was really comparing the ideal of and the romanticism of uh, Hollywood as so many have with the Westerns and movies I saw as a kid growing up to the reality of trying to find a foothold in that carnivore's arena. But 
I'd gone down to do a series with Ron Howard's company that we'd created at Second City in Toronto and sold it to them. That opened the door for us to enter Los Angeles with visas and to work. And it was canceled. And uh, we were in Newsweek on Tuesday with a cast picture. Uh, this is uh, the cult show to watch this season. Uh, Universal caught fire on Wednesday. We were canceled on Thursday. And Monday, I was working with my buddy's father's pool digging company, chest deep in a hole on Robert Urich's front yard. And of course, there's no middle ground uh, in that business. You're, all, you're, you're either winning or you're not. And that's when I began to write. And that's when I began to channel my voice and try a different tact as to how I could make sense of the chaos we were walking through and connect the dots in the language of laughs. And I really think that's what a comedian does. Well, Canada has a celebrated comedy scene. What was your experience working with Second City in Toronto, Ron? Well, it gave me standards. It was a great place to step into. I graduated with a BA in history. Like everybody, you know, trying to break into the business, you, you do Joe jobs for about a year or two. But what I did was I found a family and we were on the road playing all points of frontier with dealing with whatever fury mother nature was throwing our way all through the wintertime. We coalesced into, uh, as I said in the, uh, in the book, I said the only difference between six actors, a stage manager and piano player in a van uh, between us and German submariners in Das Boot <laughs> is that we weren't speaking German. It was uh, a great time to be uh, young and doing what you were meant to do. And then when we got promoted to main stage, the pressure became different. You know, there was always movie stars dropping in to see you if they were shooting movies. You were constantly being measured against the standards of our own idols on uh, SCTV. It, it didn't seem to be as much fun. The freedom wasn't quite there. There was always a, a standard or a box one had to fit into. When I left Second City, well, I stayed with them, you know, and uh, I, I worked with them in Los Angeles when they were there in Santa Monica. And uh, it was a very interesting time. It was always a challenge. But what frustrated me about Second City was your ideas always had to be filtered through five other people and had to be sanctioned through them before they hit the stage. It depended on the political balance backstage as much as it did the talent on stage. Hmm. And as I said in the book, I said an improv group is the same as six Bolsheviks on a communist farm trying to decide the color of a tractor where a stand-up is an enlightened dictatorship. <laughs> and I, I enjoyed the structure of stand-up. I enjoyed the beginning, middle, and an end of a joke. I enjoyed being in control of my words and making sense of the world on my own terms. And having hit my tipping point with so many auditions in Los Angeles, I thought, well, maybe I can make it work here. And so that's a roundabout way of saying I decided to follow my bliss and embrace the mysteries of people and place in my nation of origin, rather than chase this moving target of the Hollywood grail that so few people grab, really. And so the book is a celebration of those who fly below the red carpet radar, who haven't grabbed the grail, but who have answered the calling of this wonderful art form whose satisfactions for me have built me a home and a little place in Nova Scotia by the sea where I'm from and put both my daughters through university. And so what it did was it, it reinforced the fundamental values of just living your life and doing the best that you can with what you've been given. In recent months, my husband and I watched, get ready for it, Ron. <laughs> All 14 seasons of Murdoch Mysteries. <laughs> See, I made the comedian laugh. Oh, boy, but, that's quite a commitment. Well, we were hooked. Well, that's a lot this, of mutton chops and long dresses to get through, I'll tell you that. I loved every minute. We <laughs> yeah, both a, did. Uh, that's an outstanding and, show, and the people on it are excellent. Well, this is part of what I wanted to talk with you about. Here's this delightful detective series set in Toronto at the dawn of the 20th century. 
And aside from a few guest appearances by Colin Mockery, we did not know any of the actors, and I wondered why, because Canada has such a rich tradition of acting. Now, reading about your choice to build a career in Canada, I thought back to Murdoch and realized how terribly U.S.-centric my response was. Does it annoy you that people in the U.S. are largely unaware of your country's vastness and all it contains? Well, I think it's always been a bugaboo with us, and it was only exasperated when the um, the dysfunctional POTUS you had to deal with over the last few years it seemed to aggravate that. But, you know, Canada's always had this inferiority complex. As I say, you know, 82% of our population lives so close to the American border, we're practically looking up Lady Liberty's dress. <laughs> I love that. And the, the American woman's siren song has mighty magical juju, Lois. And the lure of America and the standard and the bottomless pockets that are available to make the kind of shows you want with a population of 375 million or more. It's remarkable when you see how great it can be done there. And yet you look at Murdoch Mysteries and Schitt's Creek, which cleaned up on the Emmys last year, that it can be done here. I think Canadians are, are finally coming to the realization that we can make our own kind of shows with our own kind of tone and appeal that may not necessarily mimic the American style of entertainment. Yeah. But when I think of some of the exciting new shows that I can see on HBO or Netflix, I mean, Barry, and I was such a huge fan of Veep. Yes. Uh, it was remarkable, just such remarkable comedy. And as, as you learn when, when you perform it just for laughs and you're amongst the Americans and the British and the Irish, that funny is funny. And that's what Don Rickles wrote on my JFL poster years ago when he hosted my gala event there. Uh, he said, funny is as funny does and you are. That's the kind of soul collateral you tuck away for those long, lonesome drives through blizzards a Yeti wouldn't wander to some far point of frontier. I mean, I, I, I created two television series in Canada myself. Uh, the first one was Black Fly, which I starred in for two years. And the other one was my own show, The Ron James Show. And it's a Herculean task to keep all those plates spinning at once while you're riding the trajectory of a rocket. And so many planets have to line up to make sure that everybody is taking the ship in the same direction. So for a show like Murdoch and Schitt's Creek, the testimony and the credit has to go to not only the stars, uh, but the writers and the production team and uh, the network who got behind it full force. Yes. Just for Laughs is the International Comedy Festival in Quebec. Yeah, it's in Montreal. Uh, everybody who's anybody is there. The opportunity in Montreal is great. Everyone thought they'd catch lightning in a bottle and suddenly be whisked into the Warner Brothers lot where you'd kick a bag of money around and inventing television shows, you know, and be in the company of perpetually carcinogenically tanned managers and handlers from Los Angeles who do so much about comedy, they never laughed. <laughs> but uh, yeah. So I struck out on my own and I started writing my own one hour specials. I did nine of those and they were on New Year's Eve. I was able to take a look at, a, at America and Canada and have universal content and that's a great goal for Canada to shoot for, you know, because you've got such a huge audience and to export your shows, really, it's the only way you make money. Canadian comedian Ron James. His new book is called 
all over the map. Rambles and ruminations from the Canadian road. We'll return with more of our conversation in just a moment. You're listening to WABE Atlanta. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for being here. Let's get back to my conversation with the Canadian comedian Ron James. Here, James explains why the likes of Richard Pryor or George Carlin could not have developed in Canada. There was no deference for the rebel voice. There was no deference for tipping the apple cart, and I liken it to the origin stories of both countries. I mean, you were sired by the smoke and fire of revolution in 1776 when um, yeoman farmers put the boots to uh, a professional British army and gave them the boot. They sired a suspicion of authority. You know, as I say, Canada's birth was a delivery from the womb of Mother Britain while America's was a crack baby breech bird that chewed off its own umbilical cord. <laughs> Just so totally different. And so poetic. You put it so poetically. Thank you, Lois. Thank you. I love language. But there's another reason, too. You know, America always took its issues to the streets. There was always a level of efficacy in America that, that the people could uh, have an effect, and they were entitled to have an effect on the political process. And of course, you know, Canada's motto is peace, order, and good government, which basically translates to have fun, keep the noise down, and we'll call the cops. Where <laughs> but America's, it's not a police state. It's not a police state, I know. Or better yet, instead of call the cops, we'll tell your father. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's a little fair, yeah. you know. Uh, where America's is life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness, which... <laughs> I mean, if you want to get garish, it's like hookers and blow this way, bro. It's, uh, it's a total different spin on the self, okay? And I'm not saying you're better. I'm not saying we're worse. But I think the right of the individual to construct his own reality, particularly in comedy, has a larger audience to appeal to there. Mind you, also that individualism has become contorted over the last five years and particularly during COVID because when me trumps we, everybody loses. In the early days when Pryor and Carlin were coming of age and Billy Conley as well and in Britain, we had no independent equivalent of HBO. So you could only rock the apple cart so much. In a country with 375 million people south of the border, you can have half your nation not enjoying your act in the least and still have six times the population of Canada thinking you're, um, you're doing a great job. Mm. It also underscores that tens of millions of us who believe in vaccinations and the common good can exist in a bubble with so many others. And and never meet any of those folks who support political views or societal views we don't share. So, yeah, but the individualism, it's a double-edged sword. It sure is, you know. 
I have to tell you, I, when I was a kid, I used to camp with my family in northern Nova Scotia. My dad was a phone company man, and he had this Eaton's True Line tent trailer. It's a department store in Canada where you weren't allowed to touch the canvas walls of when it was raining or it would leak. You know, of course, I had ADHD, and well, that's what they call it now, ADHD. Back then, they called it, uh, boy, there's something wrong with him. But uh, I'll never forget, it was during uh, the summer that America took one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind, a tumultuous era of, of conflict and collision and generational polarities. And I was a wide-eyed 11-year-old kid, and I'll never forget when America pulled into the campground driving a 60-foot chrome-plated hermetically sealed Airstream living unit. I remember looking at it and thinking, oh my God, it's the Jetsons. <laughs> They invited us over that night to watch the moon landing. They gave the kids a tray of grape tang. Grape tang. I'm going to tell you, Lois, I hadn't even seen the orange stuff yet. And they plugged a color TV into the side of their Airstream trailer. And we watched America take one giant leap for mankind. How cool was that? They could plug a color TV into the side of their trailer. And I wasn't even allowed to touch the canvas walls of mine. And that vision stayed with me for a long time. We would meet Americans. They were up there. Uh, there was an awful lot of draft dodgers seeking sanctuary in northern Cape Breton in those days. I guess the Clyburn Brook had a healthier ring than the Mekong Delta. You know, the roads were filled with knapsack tie-dye travelers. It was also a, um, an end-of-the-road for people who'd thrown their thumb to the merciful hum of the highway, as well as the affluence that came to summer at the iconic Celtic Lodge on this promontory of a hill that once was owned by an Ohio rubber baron. And it looked like the hotel in The Shining, but I would watch people who personified post-war prosperity at its finest step out of their uh, avocado Oldsmobiles and Delta 88s and Cadillacs with their wives in uh, caramel tanned legs and tennis skirts and, and men with this magnanimous stride and this wonderful welcome to their generosity. And that was an image of America that stayed with me too. It brought me to California a long, long time ago. And when I meet your people who come to canoe our great and beautiful Northern rivers, we always have a common bond, which is a love of frontier and a love of nature. And I think that that carries through my book uh, very strongly. It does. Reading the book gave me the feeling that I was listening to your stand-up. Oh, boy. As though you were simply performing it for me. And... As an example, I was hoping you would read page 28, paragraph 2, to the top of page 29. Absolutely. The IRS has an elephant's memory and a fearsome reputation for pursuing their quarry with a Nazi hunter zeal. Simon Weisenthal with a team of Mossad agents and a list of residents with German last names at an old folks home in a hidden corner of Paraguay couldn't hold a candle to the dedicated hitmen of Washington's tax department when they were hell bent on retribution. Not gonna lie, a little shiver still goes up my spine every time I hand my passport to an American customs agent. <laughs> I'm worried my long gone tax infraction will show up in their computer screen and I'll be whisked into a soundproof room on the wrong side of Toronto's Pearson Airport for a pistol whipping courtesy of Homeland Security. That portion about the IRS and your fear of Homeland Security was brilliant. And then, I don't know, you don't even pivot. You just go on with your life. And that is this book. You just go on with your life. May I just indulge, now that you've got me on a roll, so we don't leave on that little sad note. Can I read you this one? Please do. Okay. When I first hit the road, the tech revolution was in its infancy, and it took me a while to get on board. After all, I'm from a day where a hashtag was something you got from doing hash knives. 
not to disparage social media entirely because I enjoy sharing photos on Instagram of meals I've made, rivers I've run, hikes I've taken, and tomatoes I've grown. But I still don't know why. I don't know why it matters that someone in Salmon Arm, British Columbia, likes the garden I planted on the deck of my Toronto condo. But the dopamine it releases in the brain's pleasure center does a great job of making me believe it should. Hmm, pleasure center. Sounds like a sex club in Berlin where you'd catch chlamydia, COVID-19, Zika virus, SARS, Ebola, and a bad case of Bactrian camel ass rash just by ringing the doorbell. Out of curiosity, of course. Oh, yeah, yeah, I was laughing out loud with that, too. Anyway, there's 275 pages, Lois, that covers many, many topics. You know, it covers the journey. That's really what it is. It's, it's all about the price you pay for following your bliss and the memories you accumulate in a life lived. You write about hockey and say that for a country known for saying sorry, or as you say, lovely, sorry too much, we never apologize for loving the violent sport of hockey. No, we sure don't. I mean, that's why I had to marvel when a baseball player will be out for six weeks because he's got a hangnail, right? Sidney Crosby got hit in the face with a 75-mile-an-hour puck a few years ago uh, that reconstructed his noggin. I mean, it was on par with a Civil War wound, and he went on to win the Stanley Cup later that year. But hockey in itself, I mean, it's become a rich man's sport. But growing up as kids, when the lakes would freeze and everybody in Northern states, Vermont, New Hampshire, Maine, and anyone who's ever skated on frozen ponds and such knows that that is how you commune with the eternal. They say that smell is the strongest of the five senses, but for me, hearing your hockey skates cut into the ice of a frozen pond on a perfectly crystal clear day with a lump-free, bump-free ice surface, you'd swear that Elves had Zambonied it smooth the night before. It just harkens back to those days when you were 14 years old and playing shinny on Chocolate Lake on a beautiful sunny Sunday afternoon when the day cast shadows long as life itself and all our gods were the same. (laughs) That was a beautiful portion. Thank you. When we get to British Columbia in the book, readers have been across most of the Canadian map, and you discuss a serious topic, a tragic one, the treatment of Indigenous people. This is a shame both our countries share. Yeah, it sure is. Indigenous people cross paths with me. We just happen to cross paths, and so many people never really get to interact. And uh, I wrote the story about giving... Vern Cardinale lift, who was stranded at the gas pumps in Airdrie, Alberta, who was from a little corner close to northern BC. I wrote it a year before the graves were found in the residential schools. I went on a caribou hunt in Northwest Territories. I joined them. I wasn't hunting, but it was when I was kayaking up there with my daughter uh, three hours north of Yellowknife and the chap who was guiding an elder Dene man who wanted to get a caribou for a potluck supper at Fort Resolution on this vast expanse of tabula rasa. And we sat behind a billion year old boulder that was dropped by some glacier (laughs) who knows when. And uh, he told me of his life, the same as the indigenous kid who I talked to at the Starbucks in Northern Saskatchewan, the same as, as Vern who told me about his life when I gave him a lift. It was a year before it happened, and he told me he was a 60-scoop kid, and that's when the government had been trying to um, disavow themselves of responsibility for the residential school system, which was based on the Carlisle school system as well in in America, which I believe started uh, in the 1860s. You know, the circle had been broken for years for Indigenous people, And now it's closing and empowerment is with them now. And it behooves Canadians and Americans to understand uh, the role that settler privilege and the colonial mandate had in the attempt of crushing their will and what really has been defined as cultural genocide. 
If I could indulge you a minute here, I'd like to read this little passage about the gentleman who was responsible for the uh, administration of the residential schools in Canada. It's just about a paragraph or so. It's one thing to know that Canada's Indian Act is a draconian document of colonial oppression responsible for the cultural genocide perpetrated by the paternalistic mandate of successive governments upon generations of Indigenous people. It's something else entirely to have a casualty of that patriarching sitting in the back seat of your car, yelling. On a canoe trip down the Nahaini River several summers ago in Canada's Northwest Territories, I met an enlightened couple from Pemberton, British Columbia, whose family had farmed 800 acres for several generations not far from the affluent and internationally renowned ski resort of Whistler. The property was also close to a First Nations reserve suffering under squalid conditions, and this farmer employed as many of the residents as he could, making a point to give a lift to any he saw hitchhiking. It's my contribution to reconciliation. It's every Canadian's moral duty to do what they can if given an opportunity, he said. Well, maybe giving Vern a lift was mine. So not funny stuff, and it wasn't intended to be funny. But what I wanted to do in that particular short story was juxtapose the reality of, and I use the context of being in a second city scene where you never bail on a scene. Once I decided to give this chap a three hour lift up the road, I stayed with it. He told me he'd lost his keys. He told me that he had to get to his nephew's place. He told me that he messed up. His buddy Hugh had given him a job at the community center and he couldn't remember these phone numbers. And there was just something honest about his story. It, it didn't seem fictional. I trusted him. Would you explain your statement? A stage with only a microphone is freedom made manifest. Well, it is. It's... It's not held down by the, the guy wires of, of television's corporate structure. It's taking flight. It's, it's the life force personified. And that doesn't mean that it's bereft of responsibility either, Lois. If you take the stage to perform for two hours, it's a symbiotic relationship between the comedian and the audience. We need each other. And I think the trust that a comedian has in his content reflects the audience's faith in the performance. And that was one thing that I never really felt in Second City was that genuine freedom of flying where you can feel the wind just lift you. I can use as many metaphors as I wish. It's like riding that great wave playing the pause, enjoying the moment. It's nobody telling you how it has to be done. You've discovered yourself through trial and error, uh, through the many crucibles you experience with this calling, what you have to do to deliver what the audience is paid to see. And I recall those nights when I'd spoken for two hours and come off stage and I can't remember what I said. You're just in the pocket. And they explode from the seats with a great round of applause. And you know, you've done an honest day's work. But the freedom that one experiences with that microphone on stage, and nothing more than a glass of water on a stool, for me, it's as good as it gets. Canadian comedian Ron James. More information about his new memoir, All Over the Map, Rambles and Ruminations from the Canadian Road, is available on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Hands up is a slogan and gesture created after the tragic shooting of Michael Brown in Ferguson, Missouri. The phrase is chanted at protests around the nation against the alarming rates of police brutality against African-American men and women. Hands Up is also the name of the Alliance Theater's new production with the subtitle, 
seven playwrights, seven testaments. The production is co-directed by Spelman professor Keith Arthur Bolden with Spelman alumna and former Alliance Spelman fellow Alexis Woodard. They join me now via Zoom. Welcome to City Lights. So nice to be back. Thank you so much. How did the Hands Up Commission by the New Black Fest originally come about? Well, it came into my purview uh, when I went to the National Black Theater Festival in Winston-Salem, North Carolina in 2015. And essentially it was a play and the playwrights performing their pieces at a, an altar, a makeshift lectern. But the words resonated with me and I thought that this would be a fascinating play to do at the Atlanta University Center. And so I, I didn't think that the, the convention of coming to a lectern and doing the show would resonate with my, my audience. And so the idea was that we would devise a piece with the community and all the actors on stage the entire time and supporting the storyteller, sometimes by call and response, sometimes by portraying some of the characters and some of the stories, but really as a support system and this community revolves around each other and they do that. And so we did that show in 2016 and, and we did it one show, one night. And then we were, we were asked to go to Hattie Lou Theater in Memphis to perform it. And ultimately we ended up going to Valdez, Alaska at the Last Frontier Theater Conference. And, and we won a Citizens Award at the SETC Conference uh, Region 4. Uh, and the show, is we really just kind of do it once a year. Uh, that's what we were doing uh, at Spelman and Morehouse. And then Alexis Takeover. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, so when the show came to um, Raypack in the very first kind of like instance of it, it was my first year at Spelman College and I was in the audience that night and I was really blown away by the honesty that the piece brought and I felt like I had never been able to really see myself or my experience reflected on stage in the way that I had seen in this particular show. And so I was really moved by that and wanted to be involved in any way possible. So I began working backstage and then stage managing it and then ADing it and then kind of being like co-director, like director and proxy. I don't know, just like um, becoming like really partners in, in creating the show and in touring it over the past several years. And so we submitted the piece for the Riser Lab that the Alliance does two years ago now at this point as co-directors. We were accepted as one of the round eight winners. Then the world shut down <laughs> and Riser Lab was stopped and COVID happened and the racial reckoning happened and the Alliance thought that it would be a great time to produce this play on a larger platform. And so they offered us the opportunity to co-direct it here at the Alliance. So that's kind of the journey from where it started to where it is now. Yeah, six years later, tragically, circumstances haven't changed much. Why are these stories essential for us to examine today? Well, to your point, Lois, what you just said, the, the stories, sadly and shockingly, are remain as relevant as ever and as timely as ever. And every single time I read this piece, despite the fact that, you know, I've been living with it for six years at this point, I learn something new, I hear something new, I discover something new. And I think that this piece does a really great job of not leaning into the trauma and the pain that I think um, a lot of people may expect from a piece called Hands Up. Oh, this is about police brutality. Oh, this is going to be a trauma fest or this is going to be really painful to watch. And while yes, there are some really painful moments and there are moments where we discuss trauma, the part that warms my heart the most is the joy. It's the community, it's the ensemble, it's the strength and the survival of the Black community that we're able to portray on stage. And I, I think that it does a really, really fantastic job of showing from many different perspectives that Black folks are not a monolith and that we remain as diverse and funny and joyful and silly and brave and strong as ever. There will be seven plays by seven different playwrights. What can you tell us about the playwrights and the content of each testament? A synopsis, if you can. I don't want to say that it's an arc, but they're all they're hills and valleys. You know, as, as Alexis said, we're not a monolith. 
And so I discovered in the pandemic to myself, for myself that all characters are searching for joy. And that's the fight, no matter what that, Hannibal Lecter was searching for it, whatever his joy was. And so- mm. You said Hannibal Lecter was searching for joy? His joy, his joy, what brought him joy, yeah. Okay. Yeah, you can't, you can't, judge, you can't judge a character. So, oh, you know, really? as the actor, Hannah. as the actor, yeah. What brought him joy, what brought him joy was, was a nice Chianti and some flesh, you know. Oh, okay. <laughs> brought him joy. And so I got off topic there a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> I heard your screech. I said, oh, I need to, I need to explain that. So Thank listen. you. But yeah, these different testaments, there's one that's very poetic. There's one, there's only one female voice in the entire piece. And I work at Spelman, of course. And for me to produce this show, uh, I, I needed some more women to be in the show. And so this is a piece that Nambi Kelly wrote from a personal account. And we made it into kind of a choreo poem through devising the work. We made it a trio of women who are sharing lines, portraying other characters as one is telling, telling the story. And there's call and response, again, from the community that is engaging on the periphery. So as Alexis said, there's so many different access points to each piece. One piece may not float your boat, but another piece relates to the next or the prior. And you find that there's a through line and, and, you, and you realize that, oh, wow, all of these things are connected. And then you start to feel empathetic with the characters. And I think that's what this piece does the best is that it, it helps to foster empathy where to people, for people that you may have forgotten or overlooked or may not have considered their position. But this piece, uh, through the creation of what we've done on the stage and the, the amazing words of these playwrights, it's an amazing night of theater. And I implore anybody to come see it. Have any of the plays been revised to include more recent events, such as the murder of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, the, the resurgence of Black Lives Matter. It's really interesting that you ask that because the text that we're doing now is not the exact same text that we've worked with in the past. Uh, and so there are, there are things in there that are different and that are new to us, but it's still rooted in the aftermath of Michael Brown. And even though some of the words are different, even though there may be added pages or things may have been taken away over the several years of this play being published, it still feels like it could have been written yesterday. And it still feels evergreen and encapsulates all the emotions that we've all been feeling since Michael Brown, but especially in the past 20 months. So there's, there's no mention of more recent events, but that doesn't stop it from feeling like it was written for this, for 2021. Yeah. Each performance is presented as a full ensemble performance, as you mentioned, Keith, with all the ensemble members contributing to tell the story of each monologue. Will all seven of the plays be presented at each performance? Yes, definitely. It, it's, it's one total piece. The seven plays, they're, they're, I would say they're like 10-minute plays. They're not full-length plays, but they are full experiences, and they will be performed every night from beginning to end. And starting October 19th, I saw there will be a post-show discussion called Allyship for audiences. What will the discussions address? So Allyship for Audiences is developed by our Allyship Director at the Alliance Theater, Maya Lawrence, who is the inaugural Spelman Leadership Fellow here. And she developed the Allyship curriculum that we use in-house and that we also source out to other theaters and companies across the country. So it's modeled after her curriculum and it's a space for audience members of all identities to come together after the show to discuss their feelings about the show and to discuss how we can be better allies to one another um, and accept one another's experiences and to make better space for inclusion, equity, and diversity in all of our lives. In conjunction with Hands Up, there will be an art exhibition in the lobby of the Alliance Theater Hertz stage. Can either of you tell us about 
the installation and what viewers will see in this art. Yeah, absolutely. We were really inspired by the autobiographical nature of the play, the true stories, the the true emotions, the true feelings, and the personal nature that each piece has. And so we wanted to pull that into the lobby. And so what we've done is interview Black Atlanta citizens across Atlanta. And we've recorded those interviews and we've done portraits of each of them. And so what you'll see when you walk into the lobby in this art exhibit are portraits of these people, as well as some quotes that stood out from their interviews about being Black in Atlanta. And you'll also find QR codes where you're able to listen to snippets of each interview. And so you're able to hear the voices in Atlanta the same way you're going to hear the voices on stage. So we like to think of it as kind of um, an extension of the play that we're doing that roots itself right here in our city. Alexis, I read you were a student of Professor Bolden's while attending Spellman. What's it like to work side by side for this production on equal terms as co-directors? Well, she's my teacher now. Ah. Please. <laughs> it's great. I mean, even when I was when I was at Spellman, you know, Hands Up started there my first year. So we always worked really closely on this show. And even beyond this show, we have always been great artistic collaborators. And he's always been someone that I could lean on in my time there. And so this is just no different. It's just taking the relationship to a different level. It's amazing. It's amazing. <laughs> it's amazing. She, Alexis was an actress before, you know, and she, I won't tell the whole story. I won't. But Alexis, Alexis auditioned in her sophomore year and booked the lead in a, a Katori Hall play that I was directing Saturday night, Sunday morning. But during that process, she realized that she enjoyed storytelling from another vantage point more. So, you mentioned empathy early on, which, of course, is what theater, literature, the arts do at their very best. How do you think this production can move the needle forward toward racial justice? There's a line in a play that says white people aren't tired of racism. They're just tired of talking about it. There are conversations that need to be had. Some people, I'm a visual person, I'm a visual learner. Some people will respond to this play because of the imagery. Some people will respond to it because of the staging or because of the words. For me, it doesn't matter as long as, as, long as you find a way in. And I feel that we've created a lot of access points for this show. It's a spoonful of sugar. It's a, so it's a little bit easier going down because as you begin to care about the people that are on that stage and in that space. And this time, sharing the same air with you, which is a precious thing. It's a very intimate thing. And so I really think that by us creating this space, creating access points, we're doing our job of, of keeping the conversation going. But the burden is not on the oppressed to enlighten the oppressor. You know, it's, it, we, we have to do, we have to meet each other in the, in the middle of the road. And I think the only way to, to do that is to see the other person on the other side of the road, to em embody their spirit, to see them as a four-dimensional being and not just judge them for the cover of their skin. Alexis? Yeah, I mean, you said it. I The thing that always moves me the most about this show are the conversations that happen afterwards, and they never cease to be moving and opening people's eyes up to another world and another way of being. So, I mean, I'm just really excited that the Alliance is embracing the opportunity for post-show discussion the way that they are for the show. There's a lot of engagement around it. And I think that, you know, that's the way to program a show like this. You know, you have to be responsible with the way that you take care of people afterwards because there are going to be mixed reactions. There are going to be folks who want to have conversations. There are going to be folks who want to reflect by themselves. So I'm excited just about the kind of inner reflection and then the, the allyship that's going to be created from these performances. Spelman College alumna and former Alliance Spelman Fellow, Alexis Woodard. She was joined by Spelman Professor Keith Arthur Bolden. Together, they co-direct the Alliance Theater production, Hands Up, 
seven playwrights, seven testaments on the hurt stage at the Alliance through October 31st. More information can be found on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Catch an encore broadcast tonight at 9, tomorrow at 11 a.m. at Latta photographer and artist L. Lewis will tell us about his solo exhibition at the Mint Gallery, Voyage to Atlantis, A Future Imagined Black. Plus, Scott Stewart stops by to discuss recent film soundtracks. If you missed part of today's show, you could catch up on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. There you'll find our complete archive of interviews, so you can listen to City Lights on your own schedule. City Lights senior producer is Kim Droves. Summer Evans is our producer, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes, And we want you to connect with City Lights on social media. Share your feedback with us on Facebook at WABE City Lights. Or check out our pictures and videos on Instagram where we are at City Lights underscore Lois Reitzes. And of course, I would love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thank you for listening to W-A-B-E, Atlanta's Choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Have you donated to WABE yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wabe.org slash donate and become a member right now. And thank you.